You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. We have for the topic this week, one of the things that more and more in recent days, I'm, I'm becoming really excited to talk about. It's really one of my favorite subjects to talk about, and it has to do with this idea of the divine council worldview. And I, I've got a couple posts that have to do with that subject now. I anticipate that I'll have more in the future. So I've actually created even a custom category for this. So if you go to the website, steveshram.com, and you click on the Explore tab, um, and you go down to Topics, divine council is one of the topics there. So I am going to be spending... Um, some time uh, talking about this topic as the days go by. Now, this one, it, it kind of, um, it is divine counsel related, but in, in almost a a, a shoehorned uh, kind of way. Uh, what I mean by that is that there's a wider question here to be asked, and that's what the point of the podcast episode is to, to, to kind of answer this question, and it's going to lead, um, which I might be, you know, spilling the beans a little bit here, but uh, for those of you who know me, um, you know this already, but uh, it's going to kind of lead to a conclusion that I think is consistent with what is called the Divine Council worldview. So we'll get into that um, as we go along, but let's go ahead and just dive right in and start talking about this. The question is, who are the gods of Psalm 82? Who are the gods? I'm going to read this for you, the whole psalm in its entirety, and you're going to see what I mean. We'll talk a little bit about this. So here it is. Psalm 82, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Now, there seem to be three primary ways of understanding what is meant here by the word gods. Specifically there in verse 1, it says, He judgeth among the gods. Who were these gods uh, that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is judging amongst? Well, three kind of general solutions. There are other nuanced ones, but for the most part, three general nuanced solutions have been Offered, one of these involves um, heavenly uh, beings, and two of which involve humans. Okay, so in other words, two views here say that the gods are are just uh, humans that have been given this designation, and then the other one says that these are spiritual beings of some sort. So there's a lot to unpack. We're going to take a look first, kind of a brief look here at the individual claims and why they claim what they do, and then we're going to move forward and discuss these at greater length. So the first of these views that we are going to discuss is called the judge's view, or at least that's what we'll, uh, what we will call it. So on this view, the gods are the judges that uh, Yahweh actually appointed over Israel prior to receiving their first king. All right. Now, um, the strongest argument for this view, I think, is that these gods actually receive judgment here uh, from Yahweh for failing to do precisely, I mean, by name, those duties which God tasked the judges with. I want to read you uh, a little entry here uh, on this point from the New Bible Commentary. However, let me just take this opportunity to go ahead and mention that you can follow along with exactly um, what we are going through here, this exact material, if you go to the website, steveshram.com, right there on the homepage, just scroll down a little bit, and you will see the title of this episode, and you can actually follow along as we're talking through the points, you uh, will get the kind of um, 
summarized version of what I am uh, saying here as you follow along through the post. And also, you'll have uh, access there to the resources I mentioned, any links I mentioned, any Bible verses I read, things along those lines. So uh, this little excerpt I'm getting ready to read has a lot of scripture references in it, and you can only get those if you go to the blog post. So go to the blog post, and you'll be able to see all that is there. Okay, so we're talking about the gods uh, of Psalm 82, and insofar as they are identified by some commentators as judges. So let's talk about the New Bible Commentary here. They note this, quote, So what does it all mean? One, the gods may be the shadowy but real principalities and powers working their own evil way in the affairs of earth. The Old Testament occasionally uses gods or sons of God for angelic beings. Uh, this is me now. I think that quite understates the case. But uh, anyway, as we go on, you'll you'll see why that is. All right, back to them. Two, the duties specified in verses two through four are, however, those of Israel's judges. Their work is to exercise the Lord's judgment, to bring a case before God and before the priests or judges are interchangeable terms. Furthermore, the Lord Jesus understood God's as humans to whom the word of God came, close quote. Now, uh, about that last uh, reference he's talking about there, or the uh, the commentators are talking about there, John ten thirty five, And uh, I wanted to include the entirety of their quote for consistency's sake, but I think they're actually begging the question here um, by assuming that the Lord Jesus understood gods as humans um, to whom the word of God came. I think that's an arguable uh, point that is... It, it would determine, actually, it would help us determine the correct way to read um, Psalm 82.1, and they're just kind of assuming that it supports their view without arguing for that. So uh, I don't think it actually supports their case, but um, I felt that you needed to, to have that anyway. Okay, so let's talk about, quickly, the kings of other nations. Uh, that's the uh, second kind of uh, human view that is leveraged in support of, of this. And it would say that supporters um, of this position would say that the context that gets brought into focus here by verses 7b and 8 would require that all of the other nations be in view, and that therefore whoever these gods are are leaders of the other nations as well that God has control of. And so this, this psalm describes God's uh, judgment of these rulers from other nations for failing to take care of their people. And again, the verses that I am referring to there, remember it says uh, at the end, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Okay, so it's talking about this this nation language, right? It's It, it seems to suggest that whoever is being judged is not being judged for the failings of their taking care of Israel. It seems as though they're being judged for their failure to take care of the other nations. So keep that in the back of your mind. As we go through this study, you'll see why that is going to be important. And then the final view, spoiler alert, this is the view that I hold, uh, but again, we're going to look at the problems for each of the different views here as we go throughout this, so we're going to try to give this a fair treatment. But um, the third one here, spiritual beings, those that take this view are going to rest their case on the meaning of the word Elohim, Elohim in verse 1. Now, the word appears twice, and the first time it's a singular reference, and it's quite obvious that it is to Yahweh. And then the second time, it's a plural reference. And each of these references here, uh, translating the first one singular and the second one plural, even though it's the same word, um, uh, the ending I am, im, in the Hebrew Bible just is a plural word, but they can be translated uh, singularly depending on the context and the grammar of the passage. And that's what's going on here. So the context requires, okay, that the first be singular and the second be plural. So it's God standing in the divine council, judging among the gods. That's why it's translated that way. 
Okay, so the argument here would suggest that God's counsel is actually made up of other heavenly beings, and thus God is standing in the midst of those heavenly beings, or we might even call them lesser gods. And again, this all determines, or all is determined on uh, by what you mean by the word Elohim. And we'll talk about that. Okay, so again, these gods then are being judged for their their failure uh, to do as God commanded and watch over the people of the nations. Now, as we move forward, realize that there are multiple ways that we could actually go about discussing this. For a fuller discussion of these points in general, I would recommend uh, reading Tim Chafee's book *Fallen*. It's uh, Tim Chafee, by the way, is the content manager. Uh, for Answers in Genesis, for the Ark Encounter. Um, does a lot of great work over there for them and has his own little ministry and uh, writes uh, uh, writes books and he does a great job. And so this book that he's written called Fallen, I think is a wonderful introduction to this. Um, and uh, a lot of this is also based on the work of uh, Michael Heiser for, for kind of a more technical, uh, you know, look into these things. You can see Heiser, but 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 uh, I'm reading through Chafee's book now and he's extremely thorough with these points. And I've, I've made it, oh, I don't know, probably halfway through. And uh, he he goes really um, he really digs in. I think this is probably the most comprehensive study uh, on the issue of the. Well, his his book is is written in the context of the issue of the Nephilim and the sons of God in Genesis six. But as you will soon see, if you don't already know, uh, this stuff all ties together. He's got three or four chapters just on the concept of the divine council and spends a great amount of time on this verse that is in question today. So it's a great book. It's called Fallen, um, and I think it's highly worth you checking out. And you can get the link to that, of course, if you go to the show notes at the blog post there on the website. Okay, so um, for our purposes today, what I'm going to do is just point out a few of the biggest problems for each of these views that we mentioned, and then we're going to kind of land where, where I believe is the most likely correct view and, and why. Okay, so the problem with Israelite judges, let's look there first. So, again, as I mentioned above, it's very compelling to me that the exact problem, right, that Yahweh has with these gods, whoever they are, is the failure to perform duties that he seems to have assigned to Israel's judges. That is probably the most compelling uh, aspect of this when it comes to interpreting them as Israelite judges. Now, I will have to say, um, I, I mentioned I'm still going through Chafee's book. I haven't quite finished it yet. The chapter I am on now has to do with the, uh, well, the, I guess I should say the set of chapters I'm on now has to do with the support for what might be called the fallen angel view of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Uh, you know, fallen angels came down and interbred with human women and violated, um, you know, their natural abode. They left their natural abode, violated their natural order, and came down, and uh, this was part of the problem, the pr- proliferation of evil throughout the earth. God said the, the earth has become completely and terribly wicked, and therefore I'm going to destroy it with a flood, right? So so that's kind of what's going on. Well, well he, he demonstrates in that book that there's ample support for such a position in the early church fathers, in Second Temple period Jewish literature, uh, and the New Testament itself, and um, and what kind of ties into all of this is you see in some of that extra biblical literature, you get some insight. And by the way, just because it's extra biblical doesn't mean it's wrong or entirely false or whatever. We don't treat it the same way as we treat um, inspired biblical material, but we can learn some things from it. And uh, some of what we learn is that the um, these beings were, were given control over the nations. And again, we're going to see some more of that a little later as well in today's podcast. But part of what you learn there is that they were given duties that sounded very similar to the kind of duties that they are being chastised for not carrying out here. So uh, all that to say this. While, yes, I think you can make a a case from 
the Bible that these duties that the gods of Psalm 82 are being judged for are very similar to those duties that um, the the judges of Israel were given to do. Um, we also see that these duties or similar duties were given to the spiritual beings that we're going to be talking about as well, even though you can't um, so directly get to that from the biblical material. Okay? So um, that is just a kind of food for thought for you there as we move forward. So regardless, though, I think that the judge's view faces some pretty insurmountable problems. All right, now one problem is this. The context is quite clearly that all the nations of the earth are in view. Again, see verses 7b through 8, and that Israel's judges were at no point given jurisdiction of those nations. Now, remember, I mentioned that uh, the reason for this blog topic kind of came out of a discussion that a friend of mine uh, and I are, are having, and he pointed out to me that he thinks that these two verses could be, in a sense, disconnected from the rest of the passage, such that even if only Israelite judges are in view, uh, the psalm is just merely closing with extolling God as the ruler of all nations. Now, I think there are at least two problems with his solution here. First of all, the word judge here is used, and it's the same Hebrew lemma or dictionary word as is used in verse number one. So it would seem to indicate that the psalm is presenting a like a holistic picture. The psalmist, if we could paraphrase here, is extolling God because he judges the nations and their leaders including their gods. In other words, he judges among the gods of those nations. It, it doesn't seem to be disconnected from the rest of, of the passage. And this is made clear when you note the inheritance language of verse 8b. And we're going to talk about what I mean by that in, in depth a little bit later. But for now, let me just put it in kind of in question form. This would be the question to ask with regards to this passage. Why does the psalmist include the fact, just think about this, why does the psalmist include the fact that all the nations belong to Yahweh? Does this credential somehow lend more credence to the notion that he stands in authority over the affairs of Israel? In other words, it, it somehow is the fact that he stands over the affairs of Israel um, is that somehow uh, does that somehow bolster the fact that he stands over all the nations or vice versa? Uh, it's not clear to me how that would be. So it seems to me that as Israel's God, he has authority of them regardless, right? So even if he wasn't the God of the other nations, right? Couldn't he be the God of Israel anyway and do his thing? Well, th that seems obviously to be uh, to be the case. But if this psalm is actually describing his right to judge all nations, even though he's, Israel God, he's Israel's God, then its inclusion makes sense. And we're going to return to this a little bit later when we talk about the spiritual beings view. I don't want to give too much away now, but again, just think about that. The point of the psalmist here seems to be that even though he's Israel's God, he's going to judge the other gods because he's inheriting their nations as well. Okay. Now, a second problem with the Israelite judge's view is that they're never granted some kind of portion in God's divine counsel in Scripture. Yet heavenly beings certainly are. And you can see Psalm uh, 89, 5 through 8 in support of that. We're actually going to talk about that a little bit later, so I'll save that for then. But they're never considered, uh, you know, some of this language you get in the passage, you see sons of the Most High. Um you know, that could just as easily be translated sons of God, right? Um, that is nowhere a part of Old Testament theology, that that there are human beings understood to be sons of the Most High or sons of God, whether they be Israelite judges or anybody else for that matter. Um, now, there is a such thing in the Bible as human sons of God, but that is part of New Testament theology, not Old Testament theology. And that actually plays into the whole uh, narrative that we're talking about here. But it, it can't be used to support the fact that 
you know, to argue that these human judges were called sons of God in Psalm 82. That's not the idea here. Now, a potential difficulty is going to arise actually from uh, Exodus, uh, Exodus 21 and 22, which in turn, they lead into a much larger discussion about what scripture means by the term Elohim. Remember, I mentioned that would be a big deal for the spiritual beings view. And it's actually, uh, it comes to bear here on the judge's view as well, because there are other places in scripture where um, many translators take the word Elohim and they actually use the word judges there instead. And the primary place that this happens is this these Exodus passages, Exodus 21 and 22. I'm going to let Tim Chafee set up the problem here. Quote, Meredith Klein cited Psalm 82 as evidence that Israelite judges were called Elohim because of their godlike dignity and authority. It is true that many English Bibles have translated Elohim as judges in Exodus 21, 6 and 22, 8 through 9. Contrary to Klein's statement, the rationale for doing this was not based on ancient Jewish lofty views of their judges. Instead, the immediate context seemed to imply that human judges were in view. However, a closer examination reveals that even in those passages, Elohim does not refer to human judges. Close quote. And so rather than rehash the arguments here, I'm, I'm going to continue with Chafee. I'm going to let him summarize his findings on the term Elohim. And again, if you want to go way deeper into this, you can actually you know, grab his book and take a look at it. And you'll get a little bit more detail um, just by visiting the blog post here, looking at the verses and, and such like that. Okay, so let's let Chafee summarize his findings on Elohim. Quote, do all these Elohim have something in common? Put another way, how could God... False gods, angels, demons, and the spirit of Samuel, and he's referencing 1 Samuel 28 there, all be called Elohim. Well, they all seem to share a couple of attributes. With the exception of Jesus Christ, none of them possess a permanent physical body. Also, they are all residents of the spiritual realm, or more accurately, the spiritual realm is their primary place of operation, close quote. So to summarize what he's saying here, he's saying that after an exhaustive study of how the word Elohim is used in scripture, it's never used to describe a type of of being necessarily, a type of person. Rather, it is meant to describe a location. It's a a location-based term. In other words, what it is, is a matter of if you are from this certain place or this certain kind of place, then you are an Elohim. Because again, he, he what he shows is that God, Yahweh, false gods, angels, demons, and this spirit of Samuel that gets called up by the witch at Endor, right? In, in 1 Samuel 28, he's saying that all of these things in the Bible are called Elohim. And one of the things that they share is that none of them possess a permanent physical body. Okay, Um, so his point is that it's the spiritual realm that is where they operate. And he cites Heiser for agreement. Quote, Dr. Michael Heiser, an expert in ancient Near Eastern languages, agrees with defining Elohim based on location. He explained that Christians struggle to wrap their minds around the flexibility of this term because we are accustomed to thinking of it and only relation or excuse me, only in relation to the God of the Bible. Since he possesses unique and unshared attributes, it's difficult to think of other entities being called Elohim. And here he quotes Heiser. While it is true that the word came to be used as a name for the God of Israel, the term itself has no essence that must be equated with Yahweh. The Old Testament passages that have demons and spirits of the dead as Elohim forbid such an equation. This equation must be dispensed with. The word Elohim more broadly does not refer to deity attributes. Rather, it points to a plane of existence. And Elohim is simply a being whose proper habitation is the spirit world. Close quote. All right, so again, to summarize here, a study of the word Elohim in Scripture reveals that each and every time, and this word is used 2,876 times in Scripture, each and every time 
the words mentioned in Scripture. It very clearly refers to a member of the unseen world, again with the potential exception of these two pericopes in Exodus, these two little passages in Exodus. So either the passage in question here, Psalm 82, argues along with Exodus that human judges can be called Elohim, or the passages in Exodus have simply been incorrectly translated this way. And I have to say, given the clarity and the overabundance of, of times that this word is used to point to spiritual beings, it seems you would need a very airtight case for translating the word as human judges uh, to even think that that's warranted. Uh, it, you know, would require a pretty airtight case. So if it can easily mean God, okay, in these passages, Exodus uh, 21 and 22, if it can easily mean God and the translated ju- uh, translation um, of judges is not demanded by the context, then that seems to be more reasonable. We should interpret them this way. Now, both of these passages refer to bringing someone before the judges. And again, if you want to actually see these passages and go through them, uh, then I would invite you to check out um, Chafee's book. We're not going to actually exegete the passages. We're just kind of going around them here and showing some difficulties for using that translation. Okay, So they both refer to uh, bringing someone before the judges. But as Chafee notes here, these passages would be more sensibly translated before God before God. So again, they're translated before the judges. Chafee's going to argue that they should be translated before God. Now, given the way that such terminology is used elsewhere in the surrounding passages, that's what he's going to argue, is that in the surrounding passages, it's used this way, so why not use it there as well and be consistent? So we're going to quote him again here. Quote, We need to keep in mind that when this law was given, God was actually in the midst of the Israelite community. His divine presence was in the tabernacle, and someone could really be brought before him. In fact, throughout this section of the Bible, several verses speak of people who must come before the Lord. Look at each of the following verses that speak of people coming before God. In the first two verses, it is the same word, Elohim, that is used, and the NKJV translates it as God. We're going to go through and read through these verses here. Then Jethro, this is uh, Exodus 8, uh, excuse me, Exodus 18, 12. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God, Elohim. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God, Elohim. All right, here's Exodus eighteen nineteen. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God, Elohim, will be with you. Stand before God, Elohim, for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God, Elohim. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. That's Exodus twenty three seventeen. Here's Exodus 24, verses 1 and 2. Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seven of the elders of Israel, and worship, oh, excuse me, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, Yahweh, but they shall not all come near, nor shall the people go up with him. By comparing these passages, we see that the Israelites were expected to come before the Lord for a variety of reasons. This may have been done during certain religious ceremonies and legal matters, or even under special circumstances. So it would be consistent to follow the example of the ESV to translate Elohim as God in Exodus 21.6 and 22.9, instead of introducing a novel interpretation of the word that is not found anywhere else in Scripture. Close quote. So I think you might agree here, given the above. I mean, there's just not any biblical support for the legitimacy of translating Psalm 82's Elohim as the human judges of Israel. Again, all of those surrounding passages there use the same kind of language of coming before God and perfectly translate it with no problem being God. Uh, there's no reason that the context demands these to be human 
judges. And so to strain and to uh, expand the uh, semantic range of this word, I think would be fallacious. It's not meant to encapture or to include this idea of human judges in it. So uh, again, the, the Hebrew word is most plausibly used only of unseen entities restricting these gods to Israel's judges is going to fail to also explain the larger context of all nations given by the passage, which we're going to see here soon as well. Okay, the second problem here is the problem with the kings of other nations. So again, this is the second of the uh, human views going on here. Believe it or not, this view, I think, is even less likely uh, than the one we just discussed, which may sound kind of odd to you, um, because we did spend some time talking about the idea of all the nations being the correct context, but I think you'll see why. So um, I, I mentioned a problem above with the judge's view that they're never granted a portion in God's divine counsel in Scripture, but heavenly beings certainly are. And of course, I also mentioned that they're never called sons of the Most High, nor are they called sons of God. Well, the exact same problem applies here. God does not confer with the earthly kings of other nations as a part of his council. Um, that just seems odd to me. Why, why would... Uh, why would God confer with the earthly kings of other nations? It doesn't say that he does so anywhere in Scripture, and it seems to me that that would be to give them more power and control than uh, they were ever <laughs> meant to have. Not only that, but they're not considered sons of God or sons of the Most High anywhere else in Scripture. And it seems to be that this particular passage, this Psalm 82 passage, directly identifies these folks as members of God's divine counsel, as well as sons of God and or sons of the Most High. So it would seem to, to be kind of an identific, identification problem here. All right, now above, we also saw that the word Elohim doesn't work um, because it, uh, or doesn't work for a human view of this passage, at least for the Israelite judges, uh, because it's a place of residence term. It has to do with people that live in the spiritual world. But obviously, if that's the case, then it could no more refer to earthly kings than it would refer to earthly judges. So at least the judge's view has got this other place in scripture, the Exodus passages, where translation decisions may have an impact on how we understand the term. But we don't have anything like that with the earthly king's view. And there's an additional problem actually here that's introduced by verse number seven. The verse says that these Elohim will die like humans and, and fall, which is kind of the same, it's a repetitive thing going on there. It means the same thing. It means to die like any other ruler. The force of the, Yahweh's judgment here seems to be quite benign on this view because men are always going to die like men. What's the difference? Now, in some ancient cultures, it's true. Their kings were often viewed as having some sort of divine capacity um, and were even given unique memorials and burial rituals, things like that. There are many cultures in which there was uh, sort of an incarnational thing going on. At least the um, the view of some of these other cultures was that their, their gods were actually incarnated in their kings. And so there was special treatment given to them. But um, do we think that this is what the biblical text is referring to, that they're going to die and have a more, what, um, like they wouldn't have a special veneration at their funeral? Or, you know, is that what's going on here? Well, it really seems unlikely to me that um, that Yahweh would recognize these rituals as having any sort of legitimacy, right? These these advanced burial rituals and things where they're given special treatment. Why would Yahweh even recognize that they're given such legitimacy? And furthermore, just because there was some association between deity and kingship, it doesn't make the king any less human. And certainly God would not be acknowledging that the king was anything more than human, even if they thought they were. Um, 
So it doesn't seem to me that this uh, can be talking about earthly kings at all. Now, in our dialogue, my friend actually asserted here that verse 7 would be problematic for the spiritual being's view, um, and therefore it would support a human view, since spiritual beings cannot die like men. He says to do so, and this, I mean, he makes a good point, um, to do so, they would have to first live like a man. You can't die like a man if you don't live like a man. And further, that humans have two deaths, physical and spiritual, whereas spiritual beings only have one. So in other words, they're, they're going to die anyway. And it seems to him that, you know, if, um, it seems to him that if you have to live like a man in, in order to die like a man, then during the time that this person was living like a man, he could somehow reach some sort of uh, repentance. Okay, well, here was my response to him. I'm just going to read it for you verbatim. Quote, I think the biggest problem is that your points depend on taking the phrase, like men, in an extremely literal sense. This is a psalm. When Tim McGraw says he hopes that someday we'll get the chance to live like we are dying, he's not implying that we should live as though we are on our deathbed, in the hospital, eating terrible food, but instead that we should live life to the fullest. In other words, there's a sense in which the phrase can be taken that expresses the writer's point given the context. It seems to me that this is the same kind of idea. God is not saying these gods will have to become like a man, die two deaths, have a chance at redemption, etc. Instead, he seems to be saying, your mortality is conditional. Your status as a son of the Most High does not protect you. Just because you're son of God does not mean you cannot die like a man. Close quote. So I really do think that something else entirely is going on here. I don't think we can support, with the passage itself, um, either of these two human views. I think they're very highly unlikely. So let's look at the problem, and in the blog post, I, I put uh, air quotes around this, okay? So uh, let's look at the problem with the spiritual being's view. Now, the reason for the air quotes, right, around the word problem is not because I wanted to front load, you know, this view that I, I've already told you I hold it. So it's, it's not as though I wanted to front load it with the fact that there really are no problems, but rather um, I, I wanted to emphasize the potential problems are of an altogether different nature. There's really only one problem. It's pretty easy to understand it, but it's a doozy, okay? Here it is. If this view is true... Spiritual beings called gods exist that are not Yahweh. Let me just say that again. Maybe it'll sink in a little bit here. If this view is true, spiritual beings called gods exist that are not Yahweh. Now, it would seem to be a pretty big problem given the way that most uh, have traditionally understood Israelite monotheism. It's pretty likely that that term itself is not quite adequate to describe what the Bible seems to describe. But, you know, it's not something that's probably going to be changing anytime soon. So we just kind of have to be, you know, careful and, and nuance it when we talk about it. But um, I, I don't think that the Bible rejects Israelite monotheism. We just have to carefully understand what Israelite monotheism is, right? But now I do want to note something before we move on. I'm going to give you some positive arguments, by the way, here for thinking that these are spiritual beings in Psalm 82. Um, so don't tune out yet. I'm getting there, okay? But I do want to note something that's very telling about this here, though. There's actually no textual problem with this approach in Psalm 82, all right, just think about that, okay? We might look at this at first glance and say, oh, there's some, there's a theological problem here. Well, perhaps, but we're going to talk about that, okay? Uh, I don't think there is a theological problem here. In fact, I think it's theologically rich. However, there's no textual problem. Textually, this really does seem to be what the text is saying on any sort of cursory read. And not only that, I mean, the text doesn't only allow, I think, for this interpretation, but I think it argues for it, since the meaning of Elohim everywhere else denotes spiritual beings. So is this a particularly insurmountable problem? Well, I don't think so. So let's look at the uh, positive argument then for spiritual beings here in this passage. 
So it seems to be just one idea in the matrix uh, of ideas that is presented by what many call the Divine Council worldview. We've talked about this in other passages. Again, you can get links, or excuse me, in other uh, blogs and uh, podcasts, and you can get links to that uh, there on the uh, website if you go to this blog post. Now, put succinctly, this view is going to maintain that the gods of other nations around Israel were real. Okay, now not in the sense of Yahweh, like like having his attributes. That would be philosophically impossible. It's an impossibility that Yahweh could create another being like himself or or higher than himself or something like that because, you know, there would be this competition going on here. Logically, there cannot be more than one greatest possible being. Okay, there has to be one. Okay, so um, that's not what we're talking about here. It's not that they're that the kind of Elohim in that they're like Yahweh in the sense of his attributes. But again, like we've already talked about, they're like him insofar as they are members of the unseen world. Now, I think there are three chief elements that we find in this passage of Scripture, in this psalm, which are going to show that this is a divine council scene. The first is the language of the council. The second is Yahweh's identification of the council. And the third is the language of Yahweh's inheritance. So let's run through these. First of all, the language of the council. The first tell, I think, that this is a divine council scene is going to come from the Hebrew words that tell us it is. And hopefully that's not terribly surprising um, for you. Uh, And I'm actually going to try to read this for you. I'm I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I could not tell you exactly how all of these things are supposed to be pronounced, and I'm going to go pretty slow. But in translated, or excuse me, in transliterated Hebrew, uh, the words that are given to us that open this psalm go something like this. Mizmor le asaf Elohim nitzav ba'adath el bekorev Elohim yispo. Okay, the text there pretty much says God has taken his place in the divine council, or you could use the word assembly. God has taken his place in the divine assembly. Now, that such an assembly or council exists is actually clear, both from Scripture and even outside of Scripture. So Scripture teaches this concept actually in numerous places, and it can be seen in many passages throughout the Hebrew Bible. And the footnote on that point there has a ton of passages you can go see. So again, I highly recommend you check out the blog post for this episode, and you can go see all of that, uh, all of the scriptural support for this. But aside from Psalm 82, it's probably taught most clearly in Psalm 89, 5-8, so I'm going to go ahead and read that to you now. And the heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints, and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee? Now, unfortunately, some translations really seem to obscure the meaning of this passage because they translate the word kedushim, kedushim as saints. Did you hear that? You know, I, I read, uh, they are f- they're, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. The Hebrew word saints there is kedoshim. And there's a liability that we might import our understanding of this word um, as the word saint, like a, you know, some sort of, like, like our deceased Christian loved ones. You know, we often think about that. Um we might import that meaning into the passage, and that's not at all what is going on here. That's not what's in view. And here's an important reason why. In Jewish theology, you know, we don't have this idea of to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. You know, we, that's New Testament thinking, um, Christian thinking, and it's not going to be found anywhere in Hebrew writing. 
Rather, for Hebrews, the departed dead go to a sort of uh, excuse me, intermediary place known as Sheol. You've heard that word before, hopefully, if you're a Bible nerd. Sheol. The hope of the ancient Israelite was that at the final resurrection, Yahweh would rescue them from Sheol to live with him. Now, most translators are rightly, I think, going to render this passage as holy ones. So, um... Instead of Kedoshim being translated as the word saints, it's going to be translated as the word holy ones. And I think this is probably the accurate translation. Now, Chafee's going to comment at this point. Quote, there are clear references to the divine council in these verses, such as the assembly of the holy ones, verse 5, and the council of the holy ones, verse 7. The Hebrew word for holy ones is Kedoshim, and it can refer to holy people, holy angels, or even the author of holiness, God, as it does in Proverbs 9.10. Some Christians have sought to identify this assembly as a group of holy people that worship the Lord, but the context makes this interpretation implausible. The setting is undoubtedly in the heavens, verse 5, also called the skies, verse 6, or literally, the clouds. God is referred to as Lord God of hosts, a term widely acknowledged as a reference to God ruling over angelic beings. There can be little question that heavenly beings are in view in these verses. Verse 6 makes the point even stronger when it asks the rhetorical question, Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? Obviously, the answer is that there are none like Yahweh among the heavenly beings. The words translated as heavenly beings are Elim which could just as accurately be translated, sons of God, close quote. So Psalm 82 appears to be setting the scene as, as God presiding in judgment over his divine counsel for their transgressions. Now, secondly, the counsel is not merely an Israelite idea. Most ancient cultures actually have a very similar concept. And this is this one might be interesting to you. Psalm 82.1, a legitimate translation of this might be that God has taken his place in the council of El. The council of El. Now, many assume that El is just another name for Yahweh in the Bible. Um, well, it's, it is that. It's actually more like a title. But it's actually the proper name for the Canaanite high god. It's not a proper name for the god of the Hebrews. His name is Yahweh. El is the proper name of the Canaanite high god. So some actually see this passage as a whole as a polemic against the Canaanite religion in much the same way that the ten plagues served as a polemic against the gods of Israel. So the passage would be depicting a scene where Yahweh takes his rightful place in the midst of El's council, uh, kind of like an invasion, and pronounces judgment on them for their treatment of their people. Okay, well, again, it certainly appears to have this effect. Uh, you know, a, a Canaanite reader or you know the Israelites looking to, to you know, dish on some Canaanites, uh, you know, are going to get this. However... There's no reason to think that the passage holds merely polemical intent. Because again, we have an overabundance of scriptural references to Yahweh's counsel and its participants. So there's no reason to, to, to think that it's the counsel of El in view here because Yahweh has his own counsel. So we could kind of get that um, for the polemical aspect of it, but there's more to the passage than that. Um, and again... The existence of a divine council is found throughout ancient writing. That's kind of the point that's being made here. Um, some think that this means that the Israelites would have uh, would have held the opposite view, right? That, that they wouldn't have a divine council because other ancient cultures did. But again, in this case, that is demonstrably false because we have seen that God did. The God of the Bible, Yahweh, he did have, and he does have, a divine counsel that's demonstrated in Scripture. So, uh, you know, the fact that, that 
let's just make a, a greater point here. It's not as though just because it happens in other ancient cultures that it wouldn't happen for the Hebrews, okay? Certainly there are going to be things that other ancient cultures practiced and believed that the Hebrews would deny, but that's not universally true. There's still an ancient Near Eastern people group, and so they are going to have some very similar beliefs and ideas, um, or at least some that... Um, sound very similar, even if they're nuanced a little bit differently. So that was, again, the language of the council that we find in here. Now, the second thing is going to be Yahweh's identification of the council, his identification of the council. In verse number six, we see our second tell that this is a divine council scene. Namely, Yahweh is going to tell us precisely who these gods were. According to Yahweh himself, these individuals are children or sons of the Most High. Although, uh, you know, some commentators are going to want to see the Israelite judges here, again, we've already seen reason to think that that understanding is quite unlikely. Now, sons of the Most High is the Hebrew phrase B'nai Elyon, B'nai Elyon, and could be legitimately translated sons of God. Such a designation is actually well known uh, by biblical scholars as being a reference to heavenly beings. Okay? Sons of God, B'nai Elyon, sons of the Most High, these are terms that are basically interchangeable. Uh, Job 38.7 kind of helps us here. Um, he says this, uh, Job 38.7, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. I'm going to read the verse again. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, this verse, God is responding with a host of rhetorical questions to the diatribe that, to this point, the book of Job has been. You know, the, uh, Job and his uh, quote-unquote friends ha have all taken their turns going through and um, having their time to... Uh, speak their mind, so to speak, okay? And finally, in verse, uh, or excuse me, by the time we reach chapter number 38, Joe, uh, God is sick of it, and God starts to uh, come in and intervene on the scene. And he, he asks Job these rhetorical questions, the point of which is to say, basically, I'm God, and you're not. Um, and there are many poetic elements that go on in these passages, uh, especially Job 38 through 40. They're, they're just highly, highly uh, poetic and, and rhythmic in structure. And so one of the ways that we identify this sort of thing is the presence of couplets. And this is often called uh, parallelism or synonymous parallelism. While English, uh, excuse me, while English poetry is going to rhyme with sound, Hebrew poetry rhymes with ideas. Okay, with ideas. So in other words, in a, in a, in a couplet, you're going to kind of have two sayings that are very similar. They have the same meaning, but yet they're two different things. They say two different things, but they have the same meaning. So um, in verse 7a and 7b, when the morning stars sang together, that would be 37a, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, that would be 30, 30 uh, excuse me, verse 7b. Whatever the morning stars are, so are the sons of God. Whatever the morning stars are, again, when the morning stars sang together, and, this, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Whatever the morning stars are, so are the sons of God, and vice versa. Now, many scholars seem to think that in ancient cultures, even in the ancient uh, Hebrew culture, stars were literally thought of as being divine beings since they moved in the sky. Now, I'm not necessarily persuaded that's the case, at least with the Hebrews, but without a doubt, there is... Uh, this association, right, in the language, even in the biblical text, between angelic beings and shining and brightness and uh, what we might just call star language. There's a lot of this going on. And I am going to give you some references here if you want to check them out. Um, Psalm 148, verses 2 to 3, Judges 5.20, Daniel 8.10, Revelation 12.3 to 4. These are all places that seem to... Um, have this star language in association with heavenly beings. Beyond that, though, um, the context of the passage makes it clear that these cannot be humans, since they're rejoicing with Yahweh as he creates the earth. So we have kind of a tight association going on. The sons of the Most High, which could again just be the sons of God, 
are just sons of God, which are clearly identified throughout the Hebrew Bible as heavenly beings. Yahweh, therefore, identifies exactly who he's talking to in this divine council scene. Now, there is one more striking detail to discuss, though. Um, I saved it for last because it's part of New Testament theology. And again, I'm not wanting to kind of muddy the waters here, but, but as believers, you know, we do view the entire Bible as inspired. So it's quite important to see what New Testament authors thought about the usage of Old Testament terms and passages. And in Luke 1, we see the announcement to Mary from the angel Gabriel. Here's what he declares to her. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. That's Luke 1, 31-33. Now, the phrase that we read there, son of the highest, it's the same thing as son of the most high. That's what that means, son of the most high. So, Jesus is the son, capital S, of the most high. Now, whether or not scripture can have more than one son is going to go well, well beyond the scope of this post, but suffice it to say that it really does seem possible, um, given the evidence above from the Old Testament that we pointed out. Now, the short version, okay, again, you can go deeper into this, but the short version is this. Just as there are many little g-gods, but only one capital G-god, so there are many little s-sons, but only one capital S-son. And I think, actually, that Jesus even uses Psalm 82 in uh, John 10, 35-38 to make this exact Point. So again, I'm going to take a different view of what Jesus says in John 10, 35 uh, through 38. I think, you know, I mentioned that earlier, way on earlier at the beginning of the podcast about how some commentators use that to support the Israelite judges view. Well, I think it actually could be used much more plausibly to, and much more forcefully as well, to support the, uh, the spiritual beings uh, view. So again, God can seemingly have more than one son, uh, but they are not a son in the sense of capital S. They are sons in a different way. And by the way, uh, this would definitely be borne out by New Testament theology since it calls us sons of God and we're going to have a body, a glorified body. Um, I mean, again, and even the Apostle Paul makes this argument, um, so I don't see why it's controversial, that we're going to have a body be made like Christ. I mean, that's the point. We're all going to be sons of God, even though there's only one Son, capital S, of God. Okay, so the same thing. There was a similar idea in Old Testament theology, but the sons of God were these angelic beings. Okay, they, are, they were not us, not yet. Now, what really does seem to follow from this is that these other sons of the Most High are at least in some sense similar, right, to the Son of the Most High. Okay, they're not quite the same, but they are similar. So humans here are not in view. Jesus was not a human. Neither were the sons of God a human. Now, we are going to be human sons of God, but we are going to be human in the sense that Jesus was, okay, um, in, in that uh, glorified sense. So it's going to be a little bit different thing going on there, but the actual uh, principle is the same. Okay, finally, we have the language of Yahweh's inheritance. The language of Yahweh's inheritance. Now, there are two concepts in the Hebrew Bible that are extremely important to forming a sound biblical theology, and unfortunately, um, they are not uh, well known. Um, I mean, that's just the bottom line. Most people don't talk about these, and I think that they're a big deal. Inheritance and allotment. Inheritance and allotment. Now, let me briefly summarize the concept here. The Bible teaches that at the Tower of Babel incident there in Genesis 11, God actually scattered the nations and placed them under the jurisdiction of these lesser gods. Then he supernaturally intervened to create for himself a people from Abram and Sarai. And of course, this people group was Israel. Okay, so God scatters the nations as a judgment on the people. God places them under the authority of these lesser gods. 
and then creates a people group for himself. That's what happens. And this is probably most clearly taught in Deuteronomy 32, verses 7 and 8. Let me read it real quick. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show thee. Thy elders, and they will tell thee. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Now, one thing in this passage probably stands out as problematic. The text says that the nations were divided according to the children of Israel. But, but Babel, you know, the event of the division of the nations took place prior to the establishment of Israel. Okay, so when God divided the sons of Adam, that event took place before Israel, before the line of Israel was ever even created, remember? Because God had to supernaturally intervene. So how could he divide the sons of Adam according to the number of the sons of Israel? Furthermore, the nations, when they were divided, the sons of Adam being divided at Babel, they were divided into 70. See the table of nations there, Genesis 10. But there were only 12 tribes of Israel. So what's going on here? Something, Something's not adding up. Well, Chafee explains it this way, quote, Most English translations follow the Masoretic text in verse 8, and instead of sons of God, they have sons of Israel, B'nai Yisrael. So, why does the ESV have sons of God there, and the Net Bible have heavenly assembly? Well, if you look at the text notes in most Bibles, you will find the answer. The Septuagint has always had angels of God or sons of God in this verse. Two fragments of this verse have been discovered among the Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate the Masoretic text. One fragment has B'nai Elohim, and the other fragment is incomplete, but it has B'nai El. The rest of the word is not present. Obviously, the word was not Israel in this text, but could have easily been Elohim or Elim. Either one of these names would have yielded the same meaning, the sons of God. Close quote. Now, what may really surprise you is to hear actually how much Roses, uh, excuse me, Moses wrote about this event. Here's Deuteronomy 4, 19 to 20. Unless thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the hosts of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all the nations under the whole heaven. But the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance, as ye are this day. Here's Deuteronomy 29, 24 through 26. Even all nations shall say, Wherefore hath the Lord done thus unto this land? What meaneth the heat of this great anger? Then men shall say, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made for them when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them. God's whom they knew not, and whom he had not given unto them. Amazing. Now, Chafee provides a very helpful summary, I think, of what we just read, which is going to bring us back around to Psalm 82. Quote, As strange as it may seem to modern readers, when we pull all of these passages together, we see that God gave control of one nation to each B'nai Elohim, of the divine council, or put another way, he allotted gods to each of the nations, although he kept Israel for himself. He charged these gods to rule justly, and now we know why, so that the people would seek God. See Acts seventeen twenty six through 27. But we learn from Psalm 82 that they showed partiality to the wicked, verse 2, Rather than providing justice, they failed to uphold the practices God required of them, such as defending the poor and fatherless and being just toward the afflicted and needy. Verse 3. 
Do you remember the last line of that psalm? It will make more sense now that we've looked at these three passages in Deuteronomy. Psalm 82.8 states, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. ESV. At Babel, God gave the B'nai Elohim authority over the nations, except for the one nation he would start with, one man and his barren wife, Abram and Sarai. By the time, uh, excuse me, by the time Psalm 82 was written, the divine council members had failed miserably in their assigned tasks. They had led their own peoples into idolatry and injustice. Consequently, they deserved to be judged, and Yahweh would inherit all the nations, close quote. So, again, from the above, it would seem very clear to me that any attempt to make human judges or pagan rulers out of Psalm 82 just really fails to reckon with the other biblical data, fails to reckon with the context of this actual passage, and certainly does not deal well with the concept of uh, the existence, even, of God's heavenly counsel. Now, there are a lot of ideas here, and we're, we're wrapping up here. Um, there's a lot going on. A lot of it may be new to you, uh, but you shouldn't be uh, alarmed, neither should you be overwhelmed. Um, this view does have gospel implications, but uh, in my opinion, uh, and the opinion of all others who take this view, all it really does is make more of the mission of Jesus. And nothing is taken away from the gospel by the divine counsel worldview. Again, you know, broadly, uh, the view that these... Um, um, gods of Psalm 82 and uh, Deuteronomy 32 and such the like uh, were actually lesser gods that God, uh, you know, allotted the control of the nations over to them for a time. Um, that's broadly what is meant by the divine council worldview. And um, nothing is taken away from the gospel by that. So you can, you know, rest easy knowing that even if you're lacking some of the information and some of the context, you know, it's helpful, but it's not something to fret over. You if you are a child of God and you understood the gospel, you understood it right. Man has sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, the Romans wrote, it all still applies. It's just there's a spiritual um, meta-narrative going on. It really adds a whole other element to what Jesus did, a, a very profound element of the um, taking back of the nations from these spiritual beings. So it seems to me we do want to be careful students of the text. And if nothing else, maybe this little exercise, this podcast episode today will help you um, and be helpful in showing you how to penetrate the text a bit deeper, discover new concepts you've never noticed before for yourself. And again, just as kind of an admonition here, you know, and, and a, uh, a recognition of God as creator, you know, thank God all the nations are his and all people who will call on his name. Are his, and that's you and me. Um, and we need to be thankful for that. God is the judge. God judges all nations, and God is a personal judge. He will judge you, and he will judge me. And the question that remains is, is he going to judge on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross uh, and say, you know, that you have been covered by that or not? And that's the question that ultimately matters. However, it is helpful to go and dig into some of these passages and, and, and really gain insight into what some of these things should mean. These things that are somewhat obscure to us and sometimes confusing sounding to us, while they are that, um, they also can be very important. And I do think that there is um, huge importance to the elements, um, or to the passages, and to the concepts that we discussed here today. So I hope that you found this helpful. Uh, if you have questions around this, you like likely do. Um, if you have questions around this, you can feel free to submit them there um, on uh, on the website. You can just go to um, steveshram.com and you can find a way to ask a question there. Also, you can just say, uh, you can just uh, email me, steve at steveshram.com. You can send me an email there. And uh, if you have questions about this or about anything else that we uh, produce, certainly you are free to send those over. Well, I'm not going to take any more of your time today because we've already gone almost double uh, or maybe even triple what, what a usual podcast episode is. This was a very long one, um, but I hope you got some help from this. I'm going to let you go. God bless. We'll see you Bible nerds next time.